Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Hado and I too am an autodidact. Okay, so Hado, today we are discussing the 12th chapter in Harari's excellent book, Sapiens. And it is also, it's an easy topic. Well, I think we'll be over in five minutes today. There's no, no debate or discussion or depth to this at all. It's all about religion. Right. Well, always one of the simplest topics to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> I've uh, I've reread this chapter three times just lately, um, and at some stage we need to do a book of comparative religion yeah. or history of religion or something because it's a huge topic. Um, yeah, Harari's given us a, a lead in here, and yes, this is going and to a take very good one, while. and a very good one, and it's on a fascinating topic. I'm, I'm not, I'm not particularly a religious person, but I'm fascinated by the topic of religion. So right. I really, it was a long chapter, so I had, it took me a long time to do my notes, which I resent you, resent you for greatly. <laughs> but I learnt a lot out of it actually, and um, I was, I half enjoyed spending yes. the time doing the notes. Yeah, I look. Um, I'm not claiming to, well, we're not claiming to be experts on anything, but I'm certainly no expert on religions. Uh, there's one religion I'm reasonably knowledgeable about, and for the rest, it's a bit like languages. Um, there's probably about as many religions yeah. in the world as there have been languages. I have no intention of trying to become familiar with all of them, but I do take note of the differences between the various types. Yeah. And this has been quite useful in this, and I've yeah. had to look up a couple more religions. And I think you're being a bit modest as well. I, I, I describe you as very knowledgeable about Christianity and, uh, and, uh, and, and knowledgeable about Judaism, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I, I, think you've, uh, I think you know a fair bit about that stuff. Mm, thank you for that. Good but enough to, to get away with anyway. Well, I, certainly that, but um, I, I keep discovering all sorts of religious... Christian history and you know, Orthodox religion and Book of Enoch and all the stuff that yeah. goes around it. It's, uh, and then you look at how religion was influenced by Manichaeism and stuff like this, and you mm. start to say, hmm, there's a lot more to this than I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, today's going to be very easy, as I said. So, for example, the, the first question that I'll be asking you at the end is, does God exist? So it's, it's simple stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll... Yes, I, I, I love the simple questions with the one-word answers. And <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It is a one-word answer. Um, so let's begin. So, so religion has been the third great unifier of humankind alongside money and empires. Right. Um, because all social orders and hierarchies are based on imagination... Um, just, we'll just sorry? go back to that one yep. because you know, there are a lot of people out there who have argued that the great causes of dispute in human history are religions. Yeah. I've heard all too many people, ignorant people, who <laughs> <laughs> asking questions, saying things like, you know, if we didn't have religion, we wouldn't have wars. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, so it's interesting that Harari once again starts off by saying religion is one of the great unifiers. Yes, yeah, 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 no good point. Um, that's actually one of my questions as well. Is religion um, the cause of all wars? I think I'm starting to realise what your answer might be. Um, okay, so because all social orders and hierarchies are based on shared imagination, they're all by definition fragile, which I think is yes. a, a good point. 
So the crucial historical role of religion has been to give the superhuman stamp of approval to these fragile structures. And again, interesting point here. Harari is using the word superhuman. Yes. Um, and there's a reason he's done that. He's making it clear that he wants to include other things such as communism within his definition of religion. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes his case, as he usually does. Yeah. Um, but I thought we should point out that he's talking about superhuman here yes. rather than divine. rather than supernatural. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so... If you've got the divine stamp of approval, your laws and your society is no longer a self-serving uh, function of, of the greed of the elite. Indeed. It's actually to conform to the will of some divine authority. Absolutely. So that, that's, the, that's, not, that's not the role of a religion, but it's the role that religion has played in terms of driving the era of history. Correct. Yeah, um, which, is, uh, which is, you know, a, a distinction worth mentioning. And very, very certainly is. I mean... Many people have suggested that uh, the corruption of Christianity really came about when it got involved with Rome and imperialism and state politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which I've, I've, I've subscribed to that opinion. But the, the flip side of that is if it hadn't done that, it, we wouldn't be talking about Christianity today. True. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that is the flip side. <laughs> <laughs> That's the flip flop. Yeah. Um, so once you've got God's approval, uh, this makes the existing order much harder to challenge and ensures so social stability. Well, helps social stability. doesn't always ensure it, but you know, it ensures it for a while. Yes, exactly. Um, so let's define religion, and there's probably a, a number of different ways you can do this, but for the sake of uh, today's discussion, we'll use Harari's definition, which I don't really have a problem with, although I'd be interested in your thoughts about it, actually. But I'll, first I'll tell you... The definition of religion, according to this book, is religion is a system of human norms and values that is founded on a belief in a superhuman order. Have you got anything you want to say about that? Oh, look, uh, we can get on to why he includes things like fascism and liberal humanism and stuff like that under his category of religions, but he's got a reason for doing it. He justifies why he does it that way. Um, He's telling the story, and when someone puts forward an idea, what I do is I say, that's reasonable enough for you to run with that and see where that takes us, yeah, and yeah. then I may challenge it later or not. Well, what he's putting forward is reasonable enough for that. Yep. Let's run with it, and he's got a lot of very worthwhile things that come out of this. Okay. Um, so, definition in, in actually involves two distinct criteria so there's a couple of things you need for it to mm -hmm. be a religion so firstly there is a superhuman order that is not the product of humans yep important and the example he gives against that is professional football or soccer as yep. we call it in this country which is essentially treated like a religion in, in, in a big part of the world <laughs> but it's it's not a religion no. because nobody disputes the fact that it's a product of humans correct we made the rules up there's yeah. nothing Superhuman about them. So the passion, the passion is religious, religion-like, but yes. it's not, it doesn't meet the, the definition. As a unifying force and a disputing force. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and the second criteria that it has to fill is that the norms and values are considered binding. So the example it gives there, a lot of people, even in this day and age, 
uh, and I'm not going to dis- necessarily disagree with them because I don't know, but people believe in ghosts. Um, but that doesn't involve a set of moral and behavioural standards. Right. So, therefore, that's the reason why believing ghosts does not consti- constitute a religion. Correct, and fairies and anything else of that sort. Uh, so, so uh, all the people that put down Jedi Knight as their religion in the last sentence, you right. may not be meeting the definition of religion. Correct. There is a difference between spiritualism and religion. Yeah. Religion includes a set of doctrines and theologies and yeah. stuff like that that goes with Binding behaviours and yes, norms exactly. and values. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Which you've got for football, but that's not a religion it's because not there's no superhuman. Mm. But just having the superhuman side without the rules, etc., also yeah. isn't. So superhuman doesn't mean supernatural, and we'll get into some examples later on of things that aren't invented by humans. They might be historical forces or yep. you know impersonal forces that that, yes. that cause things to come about, and we'll get into that in a lot more detail as we go but through. One one obvious example which flows through this, of course, is mathematics which is a whole set of rules which clearly were not invented by human beings. You know, we discovered that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and what pi does and um, Euler's um, identity and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And we didn't make this stuff up. That's yeah. the way it is. Yeah. Um, but nobody's saying that this imposes any sort of moral requirements. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good example. I hadn't thought of that one. I like that. Um, so... That gets you a religion, but it doesn't necessarily get you a successful religion. It yeah. may not take off. You need two other um, criteria to actually get a religion that's going to uh, spread far and wide, such as Christianity or Islam or Buddhism. Right. Yeah, right. Good, good marketing. Uh, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> St. Paul. Yeah. Uh. Google Ads is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to, legit- to legitimise a widespread social order, a religion requires these two characteristics. Firstly, it must espouse a universal superhuman order. That is true always and everywhere. Yes. And your mathematics example, I think, where... Well, does mathematics apply everywhere? Because you have a different maths. <laughs> We're getting going to start talking about maths yeah. now. But you can't you have a different maths inside a black hole and things like that? No, the maths stays the same. The maths stays the same, yeah. okay. It, the maths is... Super universal. Yep. Any universe still has to suffer from mathematics. Okay, and this so it must be universal. And the second, the second criteria is it must spread the message to everyone. I.e., it must be missionary. Yeah, that's this, how you get success in a religion. So when we start our religion, Hala, and become billionaires, we've got to remember these two criteria. And absolutely right. Yep. Good marketing and missionary. <laughs> No, universal, universal and missionary. Oh, right, yes, yes. Okay. So the largest religions, Christianity, Islam, etc., are universal and missionary. So people think that all religions are like that, right? Yes. That's how we think of religion. Yeah. But uh, most religions throughout history have, have been local and exclusive. Yes. Um, universal missionary religions began to appear in the first millennium BC and... This actually constituted one of the most important revolutions in history. Yes, Harari has such an interesting way of making you look at history. I yeah. mean, I, I know something about religious histories, but I'd never looked at them from that view. Yeah, it, it is a satellite view. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, from a satellite level, after reading this book, I'm an expert on everything. Any, everything. So <laughs> that may or may not be true. Well, it's certainly very different to the, the view from down in the glasses, yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
So the first religion that was that was pretty widespread was animism. So um, when animism reigned supreme, uh, humans' norms and values had to take into account the interests of a wide range of other beings, such as animals, plants, ghosts, and fairies. Yep. Uh, so, for example, you don't cut down your local fig tree unless its spirit becomes angry and takes revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it was local because there was no point trying to convince a group on the other side of the world no. not to cut down your local tree, fig tree because they couldn't give a fig. Hello. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well put. <laughs> I just thought of that. Um, but, that, you know, that, that's an example. But uh, they were local. They were also exclusive. So it's not you know, you're running around trying to get... You, you didn't go out and as a missionary to the tribe over the hill no. and say, don't cut down our fig tree. You're correct. The, the religion was for you. It yeah. was exclusive. Um, and it's worth remembering that that little worship of Elohim at the start of the Bible, etc., that was, you know, we're talking totally exclusive religion there. I'm very aware of that. I mean, that's, that's uh, not, not everybody, of course, but I'm certainly very aware yeah. of that. And that's how I see... Yeah, certainly the origins of Judaism and Christianity, but mm. uh, we'll get into that in more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, so the agricultural revolution came along, and it was accompanied by a religious revolution. So in the hunter-gatherer days, the hunters and the hunted, and humans were both, mm-hmm. by the way. Yes, so we were right. hunters of rabbits and hunted by lions. Yeah, uh, they were all equal. Right? Yes, there was no hierarchy. So the behaviour within the shared habitat was, in a sense, negotiated uh, equally. Yes. Of course, non-verbal negotiation. Yeah. But you really had a you had an understanding with the local lion that, listen, at night, we'll be behind this fire and we'll be in this cave. Yeah. You can go out and kill a zebra and we'll come out tomorrow and get the bones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the land is shared with us and the lions and the fig trees and... Yeah. The river spirit. and yeah. Share between equals. Yeah. Um, now, this all changed once farmers started owning, particularly animals, but plants as well. Yeah. And this was, this was a revelation to yes. me. Yes. Um, it wasn't long before we started seeing ourselves as superior to our possessions. Yes. Which is a natural thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and that line, you know, all property is theft, is you know, the very yeah. concept of property. Yes. It has so many implications. It's still the basis of 90% of our legal system. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a good point. Um, plants and animals reduce from equal members of a spiritual realm into property. Farmers desired absolute control of their possessions. Yep. But they weren't able to achieve it, actually. Indeed not. We've never really controlled our women. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 I might say get the scissors out for that one. That's just my dry sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> untrue. <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. Now, to be honest, we've never even learned to control ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that pretty funny, but then often what I find funny is offensive to a lot of others. So. Well, indeed so, yeah. <laughs> so what we mean by not being able to control our possessions, for example, is that a farmer owns a ewe, and they can't control whether the ewe um, conceived or not. No. Right? Uh, they can't prevent the eruption of deadly ec- epidemics no. through their crops and through their animals. And so there was a... Now power was almost... It was psychologically assumed yeah. that we own these and we control these things. Yes. 
But the reality suggested otherwise. Yes. And so humans started, you know, and, looking for solutions. And for example, the uh, the soil around the volcano is very rich. Now, mm. if you're a hunter-gatherer and the mountains making nasty noises and putting up smoke, you just move off somewhere. Yeah. When you're a farmer and you're down at the bottom of Vesuvius because this is rich land for planting things, you don't want to just move off. So yeah. you want to pacify the mountain gods. Yeah. That's, that's a good example as well. Oh, geez, I'm glad I've got you on this podcast, Hutto. You're adding value. Um, so a leading theory about the origin of the gods, and I'm fascinated by this. I've often wondered, you know, how did the gods come about? And I've read a few different theories, but this is, this is a good one too. Argues that God gained importance because they offered a solution to this lack of control problem. Absolutely. Uh, caused by a lack of power over your property. Um, now, I would argue that that lack of power comes by the fact that it's an immutable law of physics, but uh, that wasn't satisfying for humans. They mm -hmm. uh, they wanted the they wanted the complete power over their property. Mm -hmm. So the main the main oh, sorry, John, I'll just finish this. So the main role of the gods was to mediate between humans. And the plants and animals. Yes. And so, so before we were doing it non-verbally and sort of by a, uh, you know, we sort of have an understanding with the local line and so forth. But now we're getting the gods to to mediate between the two. Correct, because it's now become much more important that we get rain, we get the river yeah. not flooding. That because we're stuck in one place and yeah. we've got possessions. Yeah. And we need control. Yeah. Um, because. We can't just move on. If things go badly, we just move on. Yeah. Now, we've got to make it work here. We're locked in. And so you, yeah. need, Good point. you need mediation. You need yeah. a bargaining system. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I've always said with Christianity that prayer isn't about telling God things. He knows everything anyway. Yeah. Prayer is there for us because we need it. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, that's a good point. Um, so humans, in return for this sort of added control that they are able to get via the gods, in return, humans exchange everlasting devotion to the god. Yeah, in worship. question. For, in, in, in exchange for the mastery over the environment. Yeah, and I, I love Small Gods, the, um, the Discworld novel by Terry Pratchett. Where I need to read that. There's all you do, all these little nascent spirit gods, and all they need is faith and believers. And then they become powerful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got to read that. You actually gave that. You gave that to me as a gift many years ago. I, I haven't read it yet, and uh, yeah, I feel sorry about that. Um, for thousands of years, religious devotion consisted of humans sacrificing animals, wine, and other food to the divine powers, who offered abundant harvests and flocks in return. This is where I don't quite. I've followed it up until now. I, I've never quite understood the act of sacrifice. Is this right. because we're assuming that the gods need to eat? No. It's, look, there's the old statement about if God didn't exist, it would have been necessary to invent him. Well, we have. We've invented you know, lots and lots of gods. Not only do we tend to invent them in a very anthropomorphic way, and so, yes, the gods have arms and legs and need to eat and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but we also create them to meet our needs. If you've got a god who can do everything for you, but he needs nothing and wants nothing, well, what are you supposed to do? You've got no have? leverage. Exactly. So 
you have to give the God some need so that you can meet that need, else he doesn't fit your need. So it is that the God needs needs to wait in inverted commas. Yeah, we, we create, you know, it may be that he needs worship or it may be that he needs sacrifice or it may be that he needs... Um, and how many other... How many things can humans offer gods is probably the next question. I mean, we can offer our devotion. We can offer our food, food right. and wine. I suppose you can offer virgins, which has been done over oh, the journey. Right. Yeah, virgins are always um, a good one. So maybe, that, maybe all bases have been covered. I mean, the reason I'm spending a bit of time on this is because I've never quite got where the sacrifice comes in. And it seems to me there's a bit of a tenuous connection between a, a devotion to God and the fact that you're sacrificing to that God. But if you're covering all your bases, then yeah. it makes more sense. Now, another way of looking at it is to say that God doesn't need the smoke coming from the fat of a lamb in order to feed on it. But... You can treat it as a symbol of your devotion. You are prepared to sacrifice and go without, to sacrifice your best and go without. Yeah. Um, and um, there's one that goes with this. It's like he refers to later on about the difference between Catholics and Protestants, where he somewhat oversimplifies, but he makes the point that Catholics don't think faith is enough. There must be good deeds. Yeah. Protestants take the line that good deeds are merely symptoms of your faith. Mm. Well, you can look upon sacrifice as a symptom of your belief in the God. The God doesn't actually need your sacrifice, but he does need to see that you truly believe. Yeah. This sort of, you can use all these complex theological justifications. Yeah, no, I like that one too. So in a sense, you're proving your devotion Correct. by giving something up. Correct. You wouldn't do that to something you didn't believe in. Correct. I like that. Now, that's a theological thing. And for some people, that's the way they view it. And for other people, they actually think that the God needs his food we're providing. Yeah, I like what you've... Yeah, no, I like that. Hello, you're helping. You, you, you're expanding my mind. Um, now, where are we up to? So the agricultural revolution didn't actually affect the status of non-plants and animals. like So the stuff that wasn't owned by the farmers right. didn't come into this new paradigm, right? No. So things right. like the rocks, the rivers and the ghosts uh, weren't affected. And the gods of these things, so the fairy of the fig tree, for example, mm -hmm. just didn't matter anymore. We didn't no. really care about it. So it still existed. Yes. But who gives a fig yeah. about the fairy and the fig tree? Far less uh, important. And so they lost status in favour of the new gods. Uh, Local spirits were no longer powerful enough when you were... The other thing that happened too is the world got bigger or smaller, depending on how you want to look at it. But, yeah. you know, once we're dealing with civilizations and empires and things, the local fairy, the fig fairy, isn't going to help the emperor conquer a new territory, right? No. You need bigger gods. Correct. Because you're dealing on a bigger scale. Correct. Even if you're a farmer, you may be concerned about what's going on with you locally, but all of a sudden what those bods up river are doing yeah. also affects you. Having said that, in a lot of cases, and this, this, this persisted for hundreds and thousands of years and probably even to this day, when you had a small issue, like let's say your figs weren't very good, right. you still could go to the, the fig fairy. Yes. It's just they weren't as important as they used to be. Yeah, that's and right. so you'd find that smaller people with smaller problems would you know, tend to stick with their local gods yep. and the emperor would be making sacrifices to the new exactly. universal gods. And, of course, the sacrifice is in proportion to the want. The, the emperor wants... 
to win his battles against another emperor. You need a big god for that. Oh, that's right. You need a big god and you need big sacrifices. Yeah. Whereas the local fig tree, you can make do with a candle and a, a little yeah, offering. Uh, yeah, yeah. So polyth- polytheistic religions were the next ones that came along after animism. Yeah. Um, and they came across as an answer to these more wide-ranging needs that yes. we've been talking about. So, for example... You have a, now you have a fertility god yes. who controls fertility everywhere. Yes, not just in your in your local house. That's right. And you have a, a rain god, and you have you know, these are, are bigger gods, but still very divided. Yes. Um, so you know you've got a specific god for each particular thing, which is where that first book of Genesis is such a profound statement. Mm. There is one god, and he does everything. Mm. That's a revolution in thinking. In well, we're going to get onto that a little bit more yeah. because the polytheists actually probably had a belief in that type of God as well, which was news to me. And we'll talk about that in more detail yeah. when we get there. So, as we've already mentioned, animism didn't die completely. So these fairies, ghosts and spirits were still around. Yeah. Um, they just weren't as powerful or important as the poly, as the bigger polytheistic gods. Right. Uh, they were powerful enough for the mundane needs of many ordinary people, though. Yeah. Polytheists increasingly saw the world as a reflection of the relationship between gods and humans, whereas before it was the relationship between everything and everybody in the environment as equals. Yes. Now those relationships have have become secondary to the actual important relationship, which is the one between humans and gods. Right. We have a whole hierarchy being set up here with humans right up there. That bloody agricultural revolution, Hutto, it bloody ruined everything. (laughs) I I want to be praying to the fairy in the bottom of the garden. I'm a fan of that. So humans' prayers, sacrifices, sins and good deeds were now of supreme importance. So if the god gets angry with the humans and sends a flood down to kill all the humans. Right. It's not just the humans getting killed. It's right. all the animals and trees and all that. So yeah. now humans are now more important in the hierarchy because they are deciding the fate of the rest of creation Absolutely. by their behaviour. Right. Um, so they now had an exalted status. Absolutely. So not only did they own some of these other things, they actually had a, a, a direct channel to the gods as well. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and the rest of history is just it's just all been downhill since then. <laughs> right, right. And you know, this is what you're also getting right from the, the book of Genesis is you know, it's all been downhill from there. But also humans named the animals. That made the human superior. We are one step below God, we're supposed to look after the world, all this sort of thing. Yeah. It, it's all there. It's it's a rich tapestry of human development. Yeah. Yeah. So Today we think of polytheism in most Western societies as primitive and childish. Like it's it's like it's somehow inferior to monotheism, which is you know sort of the prevailing uh, attitude about. Yeah, I I think that. Like like if you call someone a pagan, it's not a compliment, is it? No, it's not. And look, I think that's probably a true statement. If Harari says it's true, I'm not going to argue with it. It's certainly never been the way I view things. And given that Hinduism is clearly a polytheistic god um, I'm concerned if this statement is correct yeah he probably is what you're saying Um, when I when I read it I was thinking more about okay when I think of the Roman and Greek gods I treat it like just as amusing really and and, and, and interesting and you can learn things from it but I certainly don't take it seriously yeah whereas Islam I take seriously yeah um, because it's 
well, because it's now, but, but the prevailing view now is monothe monotheism. So, um, the fundamental insight of polytheism, and I'm struggling with all these, these words, is that the supreme power of the universe governing the world is devoid of interest and biases. Yeah. And is unconcerned with the worries of humans, which is a belief that I probably subscribe to, right? Right. So that, that spoke to me, that, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I should be a polythe polytheist. Yeah. Now, this is certainly true of many forms of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. It's absolutely true of Hinduism. Oh, yeah, with, Hinduism. With I think Buddhism's a good example because, you know, pure Buddhism doesn't really have a supreme. Yeah, it does. You, you are... Not one that you worship, I should say. No, not one that yeah, you worship. Okay. I'm on board with that. Yeah. And uh, that's also true of what he's saying here. Mm. The, the Atman is not worshipped because he's devoid. Because he doesn't... Because he, he... Well, he's busy. Yeah. And, and this <laughs> he's is, doing bigger things. Correct. And this is also where mathematics is... You know, mathematics doesn't care, but is absolute. Yeah, yeah. So the only way to unite with this supreme power of the universe... Apparently you can... Uh, but you need to renounce all desires and embrace the bad along with the good. Correct. So this is getting a bit sort of Buddhist-like as well. It, it is, and al and also Hinduism. In Hinduism, well, yeah, well, Buddhism right. in a sense is a is a is a spin-off from Hinduism, so they've got a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, defeat, poverty, sickness, and death must all be embraced. Now, not many people want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, <laughs> we want good things to happen, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the ancient Greeks, actually, and I didn't know this, but the ancient Greeks accredited this universal uh, power of the universe with fate. Yes. Now, you don't make sacrifices to fate, do you? Fate's just fate. Fate's fate, yeah. Fate's, fate's not yeah. going to... You can't convince fate of anything. So I, I, I got a fair bit out of that. Yeah, because they definitely saw fate, Moira, as being above the gods. Each god was... Well, the gods were fate. subject to it. So yes. Zeus was subject to yeah, fate. absolutely. And the Nordic gods too. And but so. it's interesting. You, you, pretty much, you know fate's there and you respect it, but you don't spend a lot of time with it because you can't get anything out of it, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting as well. And I think one of my answerable questions might sort of go to that topic. Right. Um, it doesn't make much sense to try and keep fate happy with sacrifices, good deeds, etc. But lesser gods have interests. Because uh -huh. they're not universal and complete and all-powerful. Right. So they can be reasoned with. Yes. Now, here's a god I can make a deal with, Hanno. Um, they're all, by definition, lesser than the supreme power, so there must be more than one of them. Correct, yes. Um, and they're bound by the rules, whether it's mathematics or fate or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're subject to that too. Yeah. So you can't ask them to go changing that. Yeah. I must admit... I did have a question about this. Does being lesser than the supreme power necessarily imply that there must be more than one of them? I mean, are these polytheistic gods conceived of as essentially a subdivision of the greater power? I suppose everything's a subdivision of yes. the greater power. Yes. But why does there have to be more than one? <laughs> why can't there just be one? One. I didn't quite follow that. Maybe you know, it wasn't really explained. And maybe you don't have the answer, but. Why couldn't there just be one polytheistic god, you know, that's below the, the, the lesser, the supreme overlord? <laughs> the issue relates to dispute, if you like, Matt. Mm. The idea of the... Yeah, you've got good and evil in Zoroastrianism, for example, yep. where they 
compete with each other. Now, your ultimate power, fate or whatever you care to think of it, um, doesn't dispute, isn't involved, is absolute, so nothing goes on. But if you want to look at, well, how can gods dispute, there's got to be more than one of them. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm starting to see something now. So, yeah. so if you have lesser gods that don't have the power, you still have to have the full pantheon fulfilled. Yes. Yeah, but, but it's, it's broken up into more than one being Correct. lesser power. Because an ultimate yeah. god has no dispute. Mm. But if he also has no dispute, how can he be subject to something, something even greater? Yeah. Um, now, one can argue around this. Theology can go anywhere. But <laughs> in, in general, if you're human beings looking for gods to recognize to solve your problems, you're looking for gods who are able to dispute things on your behalf. Yeah. Um, and that necessarily means there's got to be more than one of them. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with that. So the, the good thing that I think about polytheism is that it leads to far-reaching religious tolerance. Yes. So it's, it, you're quite happy to, to accept the existence of other gods. Yes. Um, okay, so we had 10 gods, now we've got 12. That's fine. Big deal. Yeah. <laughs> we forgot a couple of areas. There's definitely a god of that no, area. You, yeah. We might call it by a different name than you, but it's the same. Yeah. we're talking and, about the same and, thing. And it also means, you know, Gen Genghis Khan can go across, conquer whoever he does, and he's, he's not concerned about their religions. No. And the Romans can say, oh, I'm an emperor and now I'm a god, and the Egyptians could do the same sort of thing, or at least a demigod. You know, it's, it's great being able to. Add gods when you want to. Yes. So if if you were conquered, you'd simply elevate the gods of the conquering people and worship them alongside your traditional ones. Right. Um, now, often it would work the other way around as well. So often the imperial elite would adopt the gods and rituals of subject peoples yeah. as well. So an example of that is the Romans happily added the Egyptian god Isis to their pantheon. Mm -hmm. So Isis must have been doing something that the Romans didn't currently have looked yeah. after in their pantheon. In in fact, but there was one exception for the Romans, okay? Yes. There was only one god that they sort of had a problem with, and do you happen to know which one that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, we, we know that one. <laughs> yeah. So, but they didn't actually have a problem with the god per se. What they had was, what they had a problem with was with the people who worshipped that god. Yeah. Because they wouldn't worship the emperor. Yeah. Like and, 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 and the worship of the emperor was seen as essential to political stability. So they're like, okay, these guys, are, we're happy. They were really thinking, look, we're happy for them to worship their god, but you've got to bloody worship our emperor as well, because otherwise we can't trust you. You know, right. you, you're going to be causing trouble. Now, again, to be fair, Harari's being a bit cute here. Is he? The Romans had a problem with Judaism which also believed in one God. The thing about... That's not, that wasn't my understanding. I didn't think they did. I thought they just allowed the Jews to, to be Jews, unless they rebelled. Well, yes, and that's why they ended up... Oh, yeah, they, they, they had the a temples. problem yeah. from 70 but, years. But you see, the thing that was different about Judaism was it was not missionary. The reason the Romans had a bigger problem with Christianity was it was not only monotheistic, uh, it was missionary. Yeah, okay. 
the 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 ironic thing too is that it's the same god. So yes. if they had a problem with the god, then it doesn't matter whether it was via the Jews. But it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't think it was a problem with the god. It was a problem with the people that yeah. worship the god. But as as far as the Romans were concerned, the Jews were just a problem, and they were always making rebellions, etc. Yeah. Um, and yes, their god was a part. Of, I mean, they were weird people. I mean, they took one day off in seven. Yeah. And it, this this was just strange. No one else in the world did this. Um, yeah. But the Christians were not only doing this, they were leading other people to believe it too. <laughs> Good Roman citizens, for heaven's sake. They were the coronavirus of the polytheistic Abs- world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so the Romans have a bit of a reputation as being sort of persecutors of Christians. But they actually tried really hard to compromise and they were constantly trying to sort of placate the Christians. And the Christians just, they were... They were uh, they refused to negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, <laughs> they had a no-negotiation policy. Uh, fun, fundamentalists are always a problem. <laughs> um, so what, what's, once the Romans had tried everything, they just realised they weren't going to get anywhere and there were some persecutions that took place in the first 300 years of Christianity until Rome, until Rome itself actually accepted Christianity. Yeah. Um, so... But over those 300 years, there were no more than a few thousand Christians yeah. that were killed. Yeah. And that's an interesting number because if you compare the number of Christians that were killed after the collapse of Rome till around, I don't know, 1600, next thousand years or whatever, yeah. um, it's millions yes. that were killed by each other. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we don't, you know, we, we think of the Roman, the early Romans as kind of Christian persecutors, but... There's been no greater persecutor of Christians than other Christians. Absolutely. Look, unfortunately, Christians have made a thing of the Roman persecutions. Um, but yeah, as Harari puts in his book, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, when Roman Catholics killed some 10,000 Christians in one night. Um, oh, the St. Bartholomew's Massacre in France. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, would killed more Christians who believed in, you know, Protestant Christians who believed in, in faith, like Catholic Christians who also wanted you to include good deeds, as we've been talking about. And, you know, that was, that was the minor difference. They all believed in God of love. But- yeah, look, it's true that the Romans did some killing and persecuting when there were a lot less Christians around. But, you know, in the context of the thing overall... The Romans weren't into killing and persecuting. Yeah, it was too much trouble. They, they, they just wanted the taxes. That's all they wanted. Correct. And they, and they wanted people to stop attacking them. They wanted to keep their empire, keep their wealth and everything. They wanted to exploit their people, get their taxes. Don't really want to be fighting you know, civil wars. Rome was basically after stability. It's an empire. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Stability, <laughs> unity, all these sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have actually read in the past too that this persecution of Christians, like in the um, in the forum, uh, the yeah yeah uh, Colosseum, Arena Colosseum, uh, yeah, um, actually went did help a little bit in terms of the spread of Christianity because what would happen is your Romans would be sitting there watching these Christians, and these first Christians, man, they were serious, like yeah. they 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 believed, yeah. And they'd go in and get devoured by a lion and they'd just take it calmly and no hatred and, you know, all this sort of stuff. They just would martyr themselves. And the Romans thought it was pathetic, sort of, to start with. But once you see this time and time again and these Christians, you think, geez, these people, 
there's something these people have got that I don't have. Yes. They've got a faith and a belief and a joy and a strength yeah. that I don't have. And apparently it was, it was good marketing for them. Yeah, apparently so. We'll have to remember yeah. that when we start our religion, yeah. Hello. <laughs> and, the, and the Christians certainly did a good job of marketing with it. Yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, it was certainly very uh, missionary. Yeah. So over time, and uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on, on the, the minutiae of this or the detail details of this but some people began to believe that their god was the only god only god so we're starting to monotheism is yes, starting to come yes, about. yes some crazy monotheistic system who would who can believe that uh now the god that they believed in also happened to be the supreme power of the universe ah. so you're both yeah uh but unlike the supreme power of the polytheists so in a sense, they didn't invent this god because the polytheists had already sort of had it there. Yes. But this one possessed interests and biases. Yeah. Which Far is far more useful. Well, yeah, but also a bit contradictory as well, isn't it? Well, yes, that too. Um, but is, is that a reason to stop a, a good thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> so this god wasn't actually above the mundanity of human day-to-day issues. Yeah, that's right. Which is something I don't really believe, but, you know, right. my belief's probably... But a far that. more useful God. Y- useful in the sense that it's a one-stop shop. Yes. So it's the department store of gods. Yes. But, and he, but more you powerful. had all the other uses. You probably had... Oh, no, you didn't, because he's got more power, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, no, I'll give you that. Here's a God you can make a deal with. Here is an all-powerful God you can make a deal with. I mean, now we're really going somewhere. That's the one. (laughs) The first monotheistic religion that we know of appeared in Egypt in 1350 BC. Now, I don't know what you read in your book, but in my audio book it said 350 BC. And I had to do my fact-checking. Hello. Well done. Did you get 350 BC in your book Um, or 1350? Now, to be honest... You can't remember? I can't remember. 1350 BC is looking a little early for me. Well, that's I actually got that from Wikipedia. Okay, so. well, uh, we'll take Wikipedia. Yeah, and he said 350, so yeah. it, all, it all added up. Because right. It's like, okay, he's forgotten the one. Uh, or I misheard him, but I don't think I did. Um, but 350 didn't seem quite early enough. I was like, wait no, a second. Yeah, that's a point. Uh, and, and how it began, well, the first one, a guy called Uckenharton, declared that Aten was, in fact, the supreme power ruling the universe. Now, he was a pharaoh of Egypt, yes. right? Yes, And Aten was the sun disk. Yes. Now, in a sense, he wasn't far off wrong. <laughs> in terms of our solar system, you could probably argue the sun is the supreme power of solar system. Well, he, he was trying to do what the Romans did with Christianity, but now, I thought he was trying to do it... No, he wasn't trying to do it, but in 1350 BC, Christianity wasn't a thing, neither no, was Judaism. Yeah, yeah. Constantine brought in Christianity to unify the empire. With one God. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, Achanhaten was trying to do the same thing. Now, I thought he was trying to do it about 750 years earlier. You're saying he was trying to do it nearly two millennium earlier. Well, yeah, 1350 BC, yeah? I've okay. got. And, that, and that's when he was the pharaoh. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's well documented. Well, okay, so no yeah. question about it. Yeah. Well, he was a man really ahead of his time, too far ahead of his time. He could see the usefulness of this. Well, that's a statement. I'd say that that's assuming monotheism's a good thing, <laughs> which I'm not convinced about, but anyway. Well, <laughs> monotheism in terms of unifying your empire, because he had, he had a fairly sizable empire for that time. And 
Yeah, we'll talk about the unification of Monof- uh, you know, Harari doesn't go into that, but I'm interested in why a one god unifies an empire. But can we talk about it later? Because we've got a fair bit to Continue. get through. Yeah. Um, so Akhenaten wasn't his original name, by the way. He had another name, but yes. he was devoted to the to Aten, and uh, you know all the other all the other Egyptians were like, "What the hell is going on? This guy's crazy." Yeah. <laughs> um, so he institutionalised his worship as the state religion and tried to stop the worship of all other gods, yeah. and that would have been unheard of stopping that's, the worship of other gods. Right. Yeah. And he was unsuccessful. Yeah, he was too far ahead of his time. <laughs> well. I, I I wouldn't put it that way. Okay, well, right. That's a loaded statement, I reckon. Well, the other. Well, I suppose he was ahead of his time in the sense, in in, in terms of the era of history, yes. Yes. But in terms of whether it was a good thing or not. Oh well, that, arguably... that's a totally different. Story, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In terms of his people, they were not ready to give up their their favourite gods. Well, why would you be? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure that as the um, the pharaoh. He really understood the viewpoint of the common man. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he hadn't spent enough time down at the market chewing the yeah, fat. I right. I got my pyramid, you know. <laughs> you don't have a pyramid. <laughs> yeah, he, he goes and talks to the peasant, goes, oh, you know, down at the market, and he's like, oh, how's work going with your pyramid, mate? And the guy's like, what are you talking about, buddy? <laughs> um, after his death, the worship of Artem was abandoned in favour of the old pantheon. Yeah, now, Artem was an existing god in the pantheon, but he was a minor, minor yes. deity. Yes. I wonder if they gave Artem the boot completely or put him back into the pantheon. I suppose they still kept him because he was the sun, sun disc. I don't know. Indeed so. I'm I, asking you. You could ask if it would have made a difference if he'd picked a different god. but <laughs> I, don't, I suspect not. And I don't think the problem was picking the god. I think no. the problem was saying you cannot worship your existing ones. That's where I, the problem lies. I agree with but, you. But, you know, in a sense, people are happy if you have whatever god you want, but don't make, yeah, don't make me give up mine. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, now, monotheist religions did pop up here and there, but they did remain marginal. So the classic example is Judaism, of course. Um, but the Jewish god didn't have anything to offer Gentiles. No, not really. And he wasn't missionary. He was a Jewish god of the Jewish people. But that's a second issue. I mean, to start off with, I mean, if you're a Gentile and I come to you as a Jew and say, listen, you should worship my God because he cares about the Jewish people and the, and the, and the nation of Israel. Yeah. You're going to say, well, you're not really selling it to me very well, buddy. <laughs> I don't give a shit about those things. <laughs> you're, you're right. The marketing was terrible. <laughs> not, well... <laughs> It's not all marketing. Sometimes it's just a bad product. <laughs> Good point. So that they had little to offer other nations because the supreme power ruling the universe's main interests was in the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Yes. Judaism, as you mentioned, hasn't been a missionary religion. But how could it be a missionary religion? I mean, this the, 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 you can't sell that. No, it wasn't created for that purpose. No, 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 that's right. Um, so we could call it a local monotheism. Yes. Which is interesting because of the effect that now that we look back into into reverse arrow of time and, and the effect that it's had, we don't think of Judaism as a local religion, do we? But that's what it was. Yes. In, in terms of Harari's concept of history that he's presenting here, that's absolutely what it was. So the big breakthrough for monotheism was Christianity. Yes. And really Paul yes. of Tarsus was the main man. Yes. Uh, he reasoned... Now, this is Harari's argument, and I'll be interested to see what you think about this, because you know a bit about this stuff. Paul of Tarsus reasoned that if the supreme power of the universe has interests and biases, 
to the point where he incarnated himself as a human and then died, was crucified and resurrected himself. Yep. Then it was probably for all of humankind, not just for the Jews. Yep. Do you agree do you agree with with that? Is that how you think is that what you think Paul was thinking? He certainly thought it was for everyone. Yes. Is that what Jesus was saying? I don't know. Ah, yes. Well, that's a very interesting How did Paul... De- what made Paul decide to make it a universal thing? Because of the extremity of what this God was prepared to do, perhaps. It's one of the most interesting questions. I, I mean, I spent 10 years working on the question of do I actually accept the Pauline arguments on Christianity because there are certainly alternative views. Um, Paul won the day for the majority largely because he was missionary. And when Peter first heard it, Peter was a good Jew and he had trouble coming to terms did with Peter, But Did Peter end up becoming missionary? Was he convinced? He, he did, but yeah. he, he had to have this dream from God about taking part of the banquet. Um, so he didn't get convinced except by God. Well, that you can argue whether it's a justification or not. He got a convenient dream, if you like, which enabled him to fall in line with what Paul was saying. Some people would say that he was self-justifying. Others would say this is, you know, the inspiration of God and evidence of God's active participation in it. You could. Some people could say that it was written in retrospectively as well. Or did Peter actually write that himself? Um, Well, I don't even think Peter wrote, but. Well, Peter did write a couple of books for Peter, but he was not a great How does a Jewish fisherman write a couple of books? Well, okay, look, now you're getting it. <laughs> yeah, we, we could be here for days. We, we, we could, yes. Um, I've come to accept Paul's argument on this. Um, but, yeah, it was revolutionary. The whole Paul thing is revolutionary. Mm. Christianity was really going nowhere. Until St. Paul came along. You can argue that Christianity is actually uh, Paulism. You can. Yeah, Paul is just as, if not more important than Jesus in this religion. In that sense, yes. He started Christianity. Jesus didn't start Christianity. Jesus was was the message and the focus of Correct. Christianity. But he didn't start it. Correct. It was Paul that created Christianity. Yeah. Jesus is the icon, if you like, yeah. the avatar of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, what Jesus did was he definitely reinterpreted Judaism and then Paul reinterpreted Jesus. Yes. In fact, Paul created Jesus. He was Joshua of Nazareth. Yeah. Yeshua, I think it was. Well, that would be right, yeah. yes. Um, well... He was Joshua in Jude in Jewish, which becomes Yesu in Latin, which is where we then get Jesus okay. from. Okay. Um, but yeah, I look. I I often wonder if Jesus were reincarnated amongst us today, whether he would recognise Christianity, this religion named after him. Oh, I, 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 I'd say undoubtedly not. I mean, but then I, you know, I. Like, you're a Christian, I'm not a Christian. So, you know, we're, we're always going to have different sort of yes. perspectives about this. Um, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm certainly fascinated by it. And I can't say that it's not true. Right. But, you know, I, I, I can see that I may be wrong. Right. There's two big mysteries. One is Pentecost and the other is Paul's conversion, without which Christianity was headed the way of all other religions. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So Christians began widespread missionary activities aimed at all humans, mm. uh, subsequent to Paul. Within 300 years, this esoteric Jewish sect took over the Roman Empire. Yeah. What an accident of history. You can write some good alternative histories uh, based on this scenario. So easy. Mm. So now, the next big monotheistic religion that came along was Islam. Yeah. And in a sense... Islam, it was a bit easier for Islam because they had a, they had a model, like yes. it had already been done. Yes. Doesn't make it easier, but at least you conceive that it's possible, whereas yes. the Christians, you know, they had no idea, no. you know. They, but they, I actually admire the early Christians. There was something going on with them. They were on fire. Yeah. They were really on fire. And then the Muslims were inspired by the fact that Christians were able to do it. Um, so Islam managed to break out of the deserts of Arabia, which were... Uh, yeah, it's a pretty arid, arid sort of backwater. Yes, and they essentially conquered an immense empire. I think it was. I think. I think at its height, I think the Arab Empire might have even been bigger than the Roman Empire. Its peak was. I could be wrong on that. Certainly comparable. Right. Yeah. yeah don't don't uh, take that as fact. But so, it's certainly uh, around the same size. I'm not going to argue with you on history. <laughs> well, I could be wrong on that one. Monotheists tend to be far more fanatical and missionary than polytheists. Yes, and this is. This, that's actually, in a sense, it sums up why I think monotheism is the order of the day. I think it's because of that reason. Right. Because um, I often wonder, okay, I, he's explained well why we've gone from animism, you know, to animism, then to polytheism. Yep. I've never quite understood why we went from polytheism to monotheism, but I think it, it really comes down to the fanaticism uh, and, and missionary nature. Well, well certain, certainly, the problem for a monotheist is he's got to prove that all other gods are wrong. A polytheist doesn't do that. He doesn't care. You yeah. worship someone else. So it's, hard, it's harder to be. A that's, that's right. Yeah. Whereas a monotheist, you know, you don't believe in my God, you're wrong for these reasons. <laughs> I'll explain it to you. Yeah. I'm just surprised so many people fell for it. But I think what you don't do is often is turn people from one monotheism to another monotheism. I think converting poly, poly, you know, pagans or polytheists is easier. Because they're more liberal about taking on new gods. Now, once you take on the Christian god, for example, and you spend a year with it, it's like, oh, by the way, you kind of have to give up some of your other ones. And by this time, you're probably on board. You know, you believe it. Right. So, um, you know, I can see why it's doable. It's well, harder to do that now. It'd be harder for me to come up with a monotheism now that would convince a lot of Christians and Muslims that it was the correct one. That, I think you're right. Um, yeah, you know, the example in the Bible is where Paul goes to the Athenians, I think it is, and says, you know, I see that you worship many gods here. You even got a temple for this this little one. And you're right, I will now tell you about this little one, you see. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, smart man. Um, so, so monotheists are compelled to discredit all other religions as they have the complete message from the one and only God. I'm happy with all of that, except for the fact that there's more than one monotheism. <laughs> so it's a little bit hard to reconcile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's another um, stumbling block. <laughs> and they've been very successful in exterminating all polytheistic religions. Well, certainly not Hinduism. Uh, yeah. Sorry, that shouldn't say all. Most, let's say. Yeah. Um, so, for example, in the year 1 AD, which was basically in the, the actual... The concept of 1AD is based around Christianity. Um, there are almost no monotheists in the world. It's, and, and also an example of the Romans' inability with mathematics. That they, that they, 
So almost no monotheists in the world in 1 AD. 500 AD, by 500 AD, one of the world's largest empires was monotheist, i.e. Christian. By 1000 AD, most people in Europe, West Asia and North Africa were monotheists. Mm -hmm. 1500 AD, monotheism dominated most of Afro-Eurasia and it started to move into the Americas and Oceania. And today, most people outside East Asia are monotheistic and the global political order is built on monotheistic foundations. Now, I would have included South Asia in that as well, because India is South Asia. So, East Asia, he's talking about China and Japan, I think. Yeah, but India is not monotheistic. Correct. So, most he's saying most people outside East Asia are uh, monotheistic. Uh, I would have thought East Asia and South Asia, most uh, people outside okay. of. Okay, yeah, if you want to include India as being South Asia, yes, you're right. Yeah. Uh, now, just as animism continued to survive within polytheism... Polytheism continued to survive within monotheism. Yeah, sneaky that. Yeah, so for example, Christianity developed its own pantheon of saints. You know, the Catholics, and I was raised Catholic, yeah. so this is my this is what I understand of Christianity. Your experience may be may differ. Yeah. <laughs> um, whose cults differed little differed little from the polytheistic gods. So, for example, every Christian kingdom had its own patron saint who protected it. Yes, he makes good examples. In fact, the Christian saints were often the polytheistic gods in disguise. Yep. For example, the chief goddess of Celtic Ireland was Bridget. When Ireland converted to Catholicism, lo and behold, Hado, Bridget was baptised. Well... Now, I, don't know how they, I don't know how they did that, but that's what they did. <laughs> and she became Saint Bridget, who was revered in Ireland to this day. Indeed, and that's... <laughs> I, I, I hadn't realised that one before. He no, and I also it. thought St. Patrick was actually the most revered saint in Ireland, you know, so, you know. Well, I, I, I figured you would know. So. Well, no, well, look, what can I tell you? I'm, I'm third generation Australian with Irish heritage, so I can't claim to be Irish, but uh, that's where my blood uh, comes from, I suppose. Um, so, with that, we need to take a break. Great. Because we've got plenty more... Good stuff to come. We have. Yeah, we've got uh, lots of flip-flops ahead of us. Yeah, so where are you going to see me, Hutto? On the <laughs> flip. Or is it the flop? <laughs> so welcome back after we've had our 15-minute break, Hutto. Um, I, for one, uh, I did a 1,000 push-ups, a 1,000 chin-ups and a 1,000 sit-ups and founded a children's orphanage in that 15 minutes. What did you do? Um, Well, I watched you both down and recover considerable amounts of alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mention that. (laughs) So I'm I'm confused. I'm not sure if this is the flip or the flop. I suspect it's the interrogum between. So... So, in case you haven't figured it out, it wasn't a 15-minute break. It was probably closer to about four days, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. But we're back and raring to go. We are back. Back for my addiction. <clears throat> so, when we finished, we were talking about how poly, polytheism... I, the first thing I want to say is I've been pronouncing it wrong a lot of the time. I've been saying polytheism, and it's polytheism. And, right. and that's, that's the problem with having a word that you've read many times, but you don't hear too often. Yes. So... We were talking about how polytheism has had such a great uh, influence on monotheism. Yes. And did oh, you have uh, something you wanted to say well, about yes, that? Well, yes, yes, yes. Uh, included in his book, 
Harari has made the point that polytheism continued to exist within monotheism through the back door. Yes. And he's made, we've made the point about uh, na saints for national countries, etc. Yeah. Um, we've also got all the... The saints, patron saints, the patron saints for particular problems and causes. Yes, and um, ones he gives, for example, are um, uh, da, da, da. well, yeah, okay. You've got particular cities such as Milan has Saint Ambrose, uh, Saint Mark watched over Venice, but you've also got Saint Florian protected the chimney cleaners. Oh, important An job indeed. Saint Matthew lent a hand to tax collectors in distress. <laughs> One wonder who yes. <laughs> I've got a soft, soft spot for uh, St. Matthew because uh, I share a name with him. Indeed. We're both gifts from God. Indeed, absolutely. Um, if you suffer from a headache, you pray to St. Agtheus. And if you suffer from toothaches, you pray to St. Polon Polonia. Okay. Um, now, that wasn't in my audio book, that stuff. But it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Edits. Um... I'm not a Catholic, so I can't use this wonderful saint thing. But if I did, my favourite saint would undoubtedly be St Anthony because as Matt well knows, I'm a guy who can leave his head behind if it weren't screwed on. I'm forever leaving things somewhere. You're the, you're, you're the typical bumbling professor, Hutto. Oh, thank you so much, Charlie. <laughs> I hadn't aspired to be anything so lofty. <laughs> you, one can see how he's absolutely right. They've set up the saints to fulfil exactly the role you did of the, the minor gods and gods, so on. Yeah. 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 So, as well as monotheism, polytheism also gave rise to dualistic religions. So, these espouse the existence of two gods, yes. one good and one evil. Yes, but, and, and of equal power. Right, yeah. So, the entire universe is a battleground between these two forces. And the main thing that a dualistic view gives you is it basically gives you a, a, a nice, elegant solution to the problem of evil, which is something that monotheists obviously uh, have struggled with over the journey. Yeah, um, I could take issue with Harari on that, but as a general statement, it's got a lot of truth to it. Okay. So the problem of evil is essentially, okay, if we have a an all-knowing, omnipotent, omniscient, um, omnipresent, and there's a couple of others, omnis, that I think God has. Uh, God, looking over us, why is there evil in the world? Mm -hmm. okay. why, why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to explain this with a, with a, a perfectly good God. Uh, why, yeah, why, why is he allowing evil to exist? Now, I know there's explanations out yes, there, yes, but indeed. it is a problem. It's, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's... Conversations with God covers it quite well. But nevertheless, I, I do take the fundamental question, you know, why has a loving God created a universe and an ecosphere where a third of the creatures survive by eating another third of the creatures? Yeah. It is, it is a real question to, yeah. to wrestle yeah. with. So the, the common explanation for, for monotheists is that evil, well, God has allowed humans to have free will. Yes. Um, so that's why evil can be created by humans, for example, because right. they choose to. Now, a couple of points about that is under this system, if you choose evil, it brings divine punishment. 
right? And if you choose good, it, it, it brings divine reward. Again, I would take issue. Again, I would say that conversations with God has is on the right line there because he's saying what I've been saying for years too, okay. so he must be. <laughs> well, maybe we need to do conversations with God sometime. Well, we need to do something on religion yeah. at some stage, yes. So um, if God knows in advance that this evil was going to happen, that, that i.e. Adolf Hitler, for example, was going to be evil, then why would he allow that person to be born? Yes. And the other, the other objection, I suppose, is given the seriousness of the punishment which is eternal hellfire and, da and right. damnation. Would you really count that as free will anyway? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, you, you're free to suffer forever if, if that's the way you choose, but it doesn't sound like free will to me. No, look, and I, I would agree there. I'm, I have a... That's, again, a fallacy, but it's a very widely spread yeah. one in Christianity. Yeah. And Going on from there, he then picked up the idea of the Calvinists yep. who believe that, you know, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what you're going to do anyway. Yeah. Uh, so he's brought you into the world knowing you're going to suffer and go to hell forever. Mm. This is strange behaviour from a loving God. I've never understood the appeal of Calvinism for that reason. So you have the elect and there's only a fairly small percentage of people that are going to go to heaven. Yep. I, I, I'm not quite sure what the appeal of that is for somebody... To, to join, um, except for the fact that you just presume that you're one of the elect. Oh, that's absolutely one and, of the and, and it and, and Calvinists are, are usually really good people, so, you know, yep. I guess they think, well, if I'm an elect, I have to be a good person. Indeed. You know, all of that, even though it doesn't matter how good a person you are or how bad a person you are, because it's all predetermined, essentially, anyway. Well, you, you've got two or three problems, and again, this is something we should be discussing <laughs> in, in, a bit more in, a in a different forum. That's yeah. right, Ed's. Um, but you've got the issue of, if God knows everything, how can there be free will? Yeah. But likewise, if you've got free will, what does that mean? You know, if you're writing an AI program, yeah. you want to put it into space oh, and give it free will. And the, <laughs> the computer programmer comes back and says, what's this, what's this supposed to mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. You have a fairly chaotic program if you just uh, start throwing free will around. Exactly. So, look, there are real issues and we can get into discussing them, but this is a book of history. So the problem of evil is very easy to explain for dualists as opposed to monotheists. The evil God's responsible for it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a natural approach. And he then goes on to talk about Zoroastrianism. And I have always believed that Zoroastrianism, in terms of logic, had an awful lot going for it. Mm. Zoroastrianism, you've got this ongoing battle between the god of order and the god of chaos. Yeah. And I've always thought that if you're going to go for a battle between, that was that was the most obvious one to pick. It was demonstrable, and it's as real as anything else. Well, we're going to go on and see that dualism has, has had a great influence on monotheism, mm -hmm. and, and that for that very reason yeah. that you're explaining. It's an elegant, uh, elegant solution yes. to the problem of evil. Um, so it solves the problem of evil, but what it doesn't do a very good job with is the problem of order. So... The question now becomes, with, with, if you've got one all-loving, all-knowing God, you can understand why there's order in the universe yes. and things hold together. But if, if, we're, if we're living in a universal bat battleground, why is, there, why is there order? I mean, if these gods both have the same amount of power, yes. um, 
we surely would be living in almost a nightmare as these two gods are kind of, you know, going at it. Um, I think that's been, you mentioned earlier that the gods are equal in power. I think over time, the good gods started to have more power than the bad god. Probably A, because psychologically it's, it's a more happy thought for us. Right. But B, probably to explain this problem of order. Uh, I think you're right. And it's, uh, there's also sometimes a suggestion that human beings can tip the balance of power or something. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So there is one logical solution to these problems of evils and problems of order, um, Hutto. And what it is, is that there is a single omnipotent God who created the entire universe and is evil. Indeed. Um, now, it's never been a very popular religion. No. <laughs> no, I suppose you could argue that uh, perhaps Satanism or something perhaps goes down those lines. But I'm not an expert on Satanism, but I don't think they necessarily believe in evil and chaos at all times. No, even they don't. Satanism. And um, again, coming out of Christianity, um, Satan is not equal to God. He's just an opposing force. Yeah. Um, however, once again... The idea that God is evil also leaves you with a whole bunch of questions, such as, well, why is there so much good in the world? Yeah. Um, but it does, for example, give a much easier explanation to why such a God has created a universe where half the creatures eat the other half of the creatures, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not a logical solution to the extent that Harari seems to be suggesting, yeah. but nevertheless, um, it does kind of solve a couple of problems rather neatly. Yeah. And so it should be entertained as a possible solution, yes. Yeah. It usually gets ignored on the grounds that we don't like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you, you mentioned Zoroastrianism before, which is probably our main example of a dualistic religion. So. Sometime between 1500 and 1000 BCE, a prophet named Zarathustra, or Zoroaster, mm -hmm. was active somewhere in Central Asia. Mm. Now, when I read that, I thought, hmm, this all sounds a bit vague. We, don't, we, we can only get his time down to 500 years, and his location is somewhere in Central yeah. Asia. So yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Um, his creed, though, uh, developed, you know, or outlived him and developed into the most important dualistic religion, which is Zoroastrianism, um, which was named after him, essentially. So you've got a good god called Ahura Mazda, mm -hmm. and that means wise lord. Mm -hmm. And you have an evil god called Angramanu, and that, stand, that means destructive spirit or right. destructive mentality. Yep. This was an important religion in Persia in the first millennium B.C., and was the official religion of the Sassanid Persian Empire from 224 to 651 AD, before Islam kind of um, took over from it, if you like. Um, Zoroastrianism had a strong influence on almost all subsequent Middle Eastern and Central Asian religions, including the big ones today, yep. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Yeah. <clears throat> so, is there anything you want to say about that? or you? Uh, look, there's... Uh, a you seem to have several pages of unanswerable questions for me. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that <laughs> so later. So we, we might leave it till that. So another example of a dualistic religion religion was Manichaeism, which I know St. Augustine started off as a Manichaeist. Yes. Uh, and, and Manichaeism nearly won the battle with Christianity for the dominance of the Roman Empire. 
it's very interesting. Um, Manichaeism comes from Mani. I, I actually did some research on this one. Uh, yes, it certainly came out of the Zoroastroism idea, but he puts it as the battle between light and darkness rather yep. than... Um, and that's always clearly had a, a demonstrable appeal to many people, including the masses. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I find interesting is that Manny himself uh, came out of various sects, including Judaism, that... Um, so he was influenced from there mm. and Zoroastrianism, and then in turn influenced Christianity. Yeah. All these things are, are cross-polluted. Yeah, so I know St. Augustine... So Manichaeism was big on the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. Yes. And I know St. Augustine was, was big on that stuff as well, and he did come from that kind of a background. So, And a lot of that sort of thinking has filtered down through Christianity today as well. So I, I, I presume that came from Manichaeism, a lot of it. Yes, um, look, Gnosticism um, was very big on this stuff and, of yep. course, has been declared a, a Christian heretical thing. But it was quite big for a long time, this yeah. idea that matter is evil and was created by one force, but the spirit is light and is created by another. But since the 20th century, we've known that matter and energy are equivalent, have they? So ah, well, that goes back to a monotheistic type view. Well, it also gets back to a relativistic type view. Yeah. And again, conversations with God deals with that in some interesting ways. Okay, so dualism as a main religion is no longer prevalent, but its influence on the big three religions, the big three monotheistic religions, continues to this day. Yes. For example, the concept of Satan. Yes. Even though it's probably contradictory to believe in both an omnipotent God and an independent devil. If God's omnipotent, how can the devil have an independent sort of power that defies God? Um, the body and soul dichotomy. So dualists argued that the good, good God created the spirit and matter and bodies are the creations of the evil God. Right. Man serves as a battleground between the good soul and the evil body. Right. Which is kind of ringing fairly true with me. Like, you know, that's, it's almost like if we want... We, it almost feels like you can lead a spiritual life or a worldly life. It's a bit hard to lead both, I think, sometimes. Um, but this is contradictory from a, from a monotheistic perspective. Um, and heaven and hell was also dualist in origin. So a lot of what monotheists believe actually comes from a dualistic uh, background. Very, very much so. I mean, it's certainly the idea of the soul, which um, was picked up from the Platonic idea, it's, it's nowhere in the Bible. It yeah. really isn't. Yeah. Um, so despite the fact that these, these sort of contradictions can be uh, contradictory to monotheism, they still captured monotheism because they solved the problem of evil. Yes, well, they, re they wrestled with that, and there are many answers to evil, and they picked up a lot of the wrong ones. <laughs> uh, so modern religion is in reality a kaleidoscope of monotheist, dualist, polytheist, and animist beliefs. Yes. So the average Christian believes at the same time in the monotheistic God. Yeah. Um, and you could even argue that in the case of Christians, because they have could. a trinity. Yes. Um, the dualist devil, yeah. The polytheistic saints, yeah. And animist ghosts, yes. Um, scholars of religion call this simultaneous upholding of different and contra contradictory beliefs and rituals 
syncretism. Yes. So maybe we're all syncretists, Hado. Well, and the, uh, I would say that the New Age beliefs fit exactly within that too. They've yeah. grabbed a bag bag of stuff from everywhere and thrown it all together. Yeah, yeah. So... The religions we've discussed so far all have one thing in common, and that's that they believe in supernatural entities. Yes. Um, but in fact, the religious history of the world does not boil down to the history of God's heart, eh? No. In the first millennium BC, new kinds of religions began to spread through Afro-Eurasia. And some examples of this are Jainism and Buddhism yes. in India, Taoism uh, and Confucianism from China, and Stoicism, Cynicism, and Epicureanism from, from Greece. Greece, yes, ancient Greece. So these creeds believe that the superhuman order governing the natural world is the product of natural laws rather than divine wills and whims. Yes, so this is where Harari's taken his superhuman rather than supernatural. Yes, yes, correct. So... Sometimes they allow the existence of God. So if, if you're an ancient Greek uh, Stoic, for example, you still probably believed in Zeus and the pantheon of gods. Yeah. Um, so they allow, they could allow for the existence of gods, but the gods were subject to the laws of nature other than the other way around. Yes. So, for example, the, I mean, a classic example of this is Buddhism. So the central figure of Buddhism is not a god, but a human being, Siddhartha Gautama. Yes. His main insight was that suffering is caused not by external events, but by one's own mind. And you can train the mind by certain meditation techniques to experience the world as it is without experiencing the suffering. Yes. So you can't sort of stop all your problems. You can just stop the suffering that yes. results. You can calm the fire, I think. You can. So the end result leads to craving being replaced by complete contentment and serenity. And this, yeah. is, this is known as nirvana. Those that have attained nirvana are fully liberated from all suffering. So they can still experience unpleasantness and pain, but it causes them no misery. Correct. Uh, they just observe it within themselves. Yeah. So Buddhists believe that suffering, all suffering arises from craving. And... They believe in that law so that it applies always and everywhere. Yes. Uh, belief in gods is of minor importance. If you achieve nirvana, no god can ruin your day. Correct. So therefore you don't need to appeal to any gods to help out because circumstances are no longer defining how you feel about that. That sounds attractive to me, Hello. It's got things going for it. <clears throat> nearly, I... nearly as good as fishing by the river. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds attractive, but you've got to give up a few things to be able to attain it, which is, doesn't come as easily. So, similarly, the modern age has seen the rise of numerous new natural law religions, such as liberalism, communism, capitalism, nationalism and Nazism. Right. This is where he's now able to bring in the ideologies as fulfilling much the same role as religions. Yes. And, yeah, Harari makes Well, he, he's not even saying that. He's saying that ideology is another word for religion. He's saying they're the same thing. Well, yes, he, he's, he's taking it that step further because, yeah. because he's used the word superhuman rather than supernatural. Yeah. He is saying that from the viewpoint of the historical perspective he's using, they yeah. are fulfilling the yeah. same function. Yeah. So these are systems of human norms and values that are founded on the belief of a superhuman order. So yes. they meet the definition that he's given for religion. Yes. Uh, 
if you take this if you take this definition if you accept it then soviet communism soviet communism is just as much of a religion as islam yes and i've heard people make this point before for good reasons yeah. they said look you know you have the problem in christianity that you can never say christianity is wrong you can only say the christians have failed to fulfill it yeah and exactly the same thing happened with communism you know the idea of uh, to each according to their need, from each according to their ability, it, it sounds like such an Well, it's argument. almost, it's basically the Christian message, really. Well, that's one argument. Yeah. The other argument is, you know, it's indisputable. You yeah. can't say that communism is bad. You can only say the communists are yeah. bad. Yeah. And yeah. This, this does give you a problem in disputing with these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So, for example... Soviet communism believed in a superhuman order of natural and immutable laws that should guide human actions, just as Christians do. Yes. Um, they had their holy scripts and prophetic books, yes. such as Das Kapital by yeah. Marx. Um, they have their holidays, or had their holidays and festivals, so 1st of May, International Workers' Day, yeah. which we still celebrate in Australia. We have a day off for Labor we Day. We do. I don't yes. think we have it on the 1st of May. I think no, we, we have don't. it in October, no. don't we? We, we move everything around there. We're, we're down the bottom anyway. Yeah, I love Labor Day because it feels like it's a holiday, which is kind of a bonus. It's a bit like the Queen's birthday holiday that we have. Um, and they also have a holiday for the anniversary of the October Revolution, or they did have in Soviet Russia. Um, they had theologians adept at Marxist dialectics, so they had their experts on the Marxist, they, uh, on the Marxist philosophy. Certainly did, their own priesthood, yep. Yep. Every unit in the army had a had a chaplain, yeah, in inverted commas, called a commissar, who yeah. monitored the piety of soldiers and officers. Absolutely, and you know, seriously, not so dissimilar from puritanical Christianity. Not, well, it's the, yeah, it's the same. Yeah, <laughs> they they had martyrs, holy wars, and heresies such yeah. as Trotskyism. Oh yes, <laughs> and it was a fanatical and missionary religion. They yeah. wanted to spread it. Throughout the world. Absolutely. Um, the moment you substitute that word superhuman instead of supernatural, yes. Yeah, yeah. So modern ideologies are just as syncretic as traditional religions. So the modern American is simultaneously a nationalist, a capitalist, and a liberal humanist, generally. Many speaking. are. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about these religions later. Um, humanist religions worship... Homo sapiens rather than gods. Mm. Humanists believe that Homo sapiens have a unique and sacred nature, which is fundamentally different from the nature of all other animal and phenomena. Mm. The unique nature of Homo sapiens is the most important thing in the world and determines the meaning of everything. Mm, arrogance everywhere. <laughs> well, I consider myself a liberal humanist, but I don't actually believe with some of these fundamentals <laughs> of the philosophy, so that, that disturbed me a bit. Um, the supreme good is the good of Homo sapiens, and all other things exist for the benefit of Homo sapiens. Ah, yes, well, we'll get into that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so there are three rival, three rival sex, sects within humanism, okay? Right. So the first, and they're liberal humanism, socialist humanism, and evolutionary humanism. Right. Okay, so let's talk about those in a bit more detail. So liberal humanism says that humanity is a quality of individual humans and that the liberty of individuals is sacrosanct. Right. Freedom of choice and 
human spirit. Yes. Humanity lies within the core of each individual, and it's not to be messed with. Right. Our inner humanity is the source for all ethical and political authority, and the inner voice needs to be protected against intrusion or harm. Right. Its commandments are collectively known as human rights. Mm. So they're against torture and capital punishment, for example. Right, yeah. Um, whereas back in medieval Europe, in contrast, torture and capital punishment were seen as good things because they were tools that put the cosmos back into balance. And that was interesting to me. Because yes. I'm like, why were these people so brutal? And why, why did they go and watch people getting burned at the stake and hung and all that? Right. But they saw it as actually being a good thing that was putting the cosmos back into order. As, so they didn't have that same... They didn't have a liberal humanist outlook no, on reality. Exa- exactly right. I mean, you have St. Paul saying, you know, burn the body so that the soul may be recovered. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So... When people were watching people get burned at the stakes, they they, they all probably almost saw it as a celebration. Like yes. this person's being liberated from their evil life. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, humanists don't agree with any of this. They believe in humane punishments and they respect the sanctity of humanity. It, it's actually a direct legacy of monotheist foundations. Um, and in particular... Uh, it comes from the Christian belief of free and eternal individual souls. Yep. Which also is is even more a Protestant idea than right. it is a Catholic idea. Because, you know, the Catholics think you've got to be part of this body and go to a priesthood. Yes. And the Protestants have got this emphasis on individual direct yeah. communication with God. That's interesting. That could be a reflection of the fact that Protestantism sort of came about, you know, 1,500 years later, so yep. times may have changed. Absolutely. And yeah. it's also, <laughs> if we look at America, you know, you're back to the Elizabeth I and it was the English and the Protestants. It's amazing how history all hangs together. Yeah. And so you have this very American view of uh, individual liberalism um, and your know, pursuit of happiness. Because America was founded at the time when these things were... Correct. Yeah, when would... Protestantism and I suppose the Enlightenment, you know, had yep. all, they all sort of happened around the same time as America was being founded. The other thing with America is it was a big, wide-open space. Yes, and so individualism ruled the day. Like you go, you go out to the frontier, and you and you know the police and law and order wouldn't come for another twenty years. No, exactly. So you sort of had to sort it out yourself. Yes, mm. yes, yeah. And going back to the the liberal idea, I absolutely the humanist idea, I absolutely detest the self made man. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody is a self-made man, but you know it's, yeah. it's big in the ideology. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. So another rival sect to liberal humanism, or the first rival sect to liberal humanism that we'll discuss is socialist humanism. Mm. And this says that humanity is collective rather than individualistic. Yes. So socialism seeks quality between all humans. Inequality is the worst blasphemy against the sanctity of humanity. Right. Um, This is actually also built on monotheist foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a version of the monotheist idea that all souls are equal before God. So liberal humanism is is emphasising the free and eternal individualness of the soul. Yes. And socialist humanism is emphasising that all souls are equal before God. Yes. Which probably 
most monotheists wouldn't argue with either of those, Correct. but then they can lead to a lot of disputes. Correct. And then, then you have the split between communism and capitalism. Yeah. You know? it's, uh, yeah. Everything interacts with everything else. It's the arrow of history, Hutto. We're starting to understand it. We are, yes. Thank the you. The point is to change it. <laughs> ah, that comes later. <laughs> now, the third uh, form of humanism is evolutionary humanism, which... When I was reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, these guys are making some good points. And then I realised that it was the philosophy of the Nazis, and then right. I went off it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, evolutionary humanists, i.e. Nazis, <laughs> defined humanity different, differently. And they were greatly influenced by the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm. So that, that came about in the 19th century, and the Nazis came about yeah. Yeah, shortly thereafter. Humankind is not universal and eternal, but rather can evolve or degenerate. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually disagree with that statement, but, you know, the implications are quite horrifying. You, you disagree uh, with that statement, do you? Uh, well, I, I disagree with Nazism. And oh, I, yeah, well, I do as a well. A bunch of levels. Yeah, I'm um, trying to talk about the philosophy without getting it um, all bubbled up with, with Nazism, because obviously we're both not Nazis. Right, yes, indeed. Uh, look, um, humans can indeed evolve, and yes, as part of that, you can degenerate. Yeah. It's difficult to argue against well, that. Well, that. That, that was sort of my point. So yeah. like, when I first started reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm out of the three. I was like, I think I most more closely agree with these guys. Oh, okay. And then I was horrified at the end when I found out it was the Nazi. <laughs> um, so man can evolve into a superman or degenerate into a subhuman. Right. Um, they were trying to protect humankind from degeneration and encourage its evolution. They saw the different human races as being the first step to evolutionary diversion. Now, this is where they got their facts wrong. That's Indeed. not actually true. No, that's correct. And so that's where I felt a bit more comfortable. Right, right. Uh, and the Aryans had the potential to evolve to become superhumans as long as they were not deluded by other races. Now, that's also wrong. So yeah. it's one thing to say, even to say that the races are a step towards evolution is, is incorrect. But even right. if you do say that, it's another thing to say, oh, and by the way, the race that we're a member of happens to be the superior one. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's, no, there's no data to, make, to back that up. That's and, just that's just And, and the, the other thing that's so humorous about this is, you know, and we are right back to Genesis and keeping the blood pure of the Israelites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are these Gentiles doing trying to keep their blood pure, Hutto? I mean, God, this is, this is anti-Christian. Anti um, in 1933, Nazi beliefs weren't actually beyond the pale. So these beliefs, the, the, you know, people in UK, America, yeah. they, they believe this stuff. You know, like um, social Darwinism was, was the yes. order of the day. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of other stuff uh, that Aldous Huxley was writing about in terms of social agendas and things like this, which when we look back on them now, 100 years later, they seem naive. Mm. But, yeah, that was best knowledge of the yeah, day. Yeah, I, I don't think of them as naive. I think of them as dangerous. Well, they, they had that characteristic too. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I feel like, changing the subject slightly, I feel like we're going to feel like this about the way we treat animals. Uh, in you know, in in a couple of hundred years' time, we're going to look back. And go, I can't believe we did that stuff. Yeah, we we've had this discussion somewhere between the flip and the flop. That, yeah. uh, they're going to pull down the statues for Hado and Matt because we eat chickens. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Um, now these beliefs have been debunked uh, as modern science has shown that the genetic differences between races is is basically zero. 
Yes. And, and it, was, it actually was zero until we found there was a bit of Neanderthal in, in the Europeans and, and a bit of Malaysians have some Denisovan blood in them. So we don't have complete zero genetic differences, but um, it's, <laughs> it's negligible. Um, the, Nazis, the Nazis ended up being the worst poster boys for racism in the West. Um, but they didn't loathe humanity. But they were arguing that they loved humanity. That was their argument, but they were very selective about which humans <laughs> should be allowed to Correct. Do. So they loathed liberal humanism and socialist humanism because they admired humanity. So they were very much against the liberal West and the communist East. Right, because they saw them as leading to degeneration. Correct. They were concerned about realising the potential of humanity. yeah. yeah. So they were trying to prevent humanity from degenerating by giving evolution a helping hand. Mm. And once you start giving evolution a helping hand, it can lead to a lot of problems. It can. Unfortunately, we've been doing it anyway. You know, natural evolution for human beings has stopped a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we select who charges the machine guns and who who lives in riches and dies in poverty. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're right in thinking that natural evolution for humankind has largely stopped. And in the 21st century, we could stop it entirely. We could now redesign the genome in a better way. Yeah. And we probably should. Yeah. Um, when we do that, of course, we are indeed trying to step into the God realm. Yes. <sighs> And that's why we're also, well, not all, but that's why a lot of people are scared of yes. mucking around with DNA. Well, unfortunately, there's two or three things. One is, as we go through the learning curve, we don't often get things right first time. Yeah, yeah. The second is... E evolution doesn't either, by the way. Oh, absolutely not. So there's plenty of blind alleys oh, that absolutely. Uh, this evolution goes In down. fact, it could be argued that evolution gets it wrong all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know... I watched a very interesting documentary the other day and it was looking at ways we could improve ourselves and they redesigned the human being for a number of things. For instance, we have a blind spot in the eye. There are creatures that do not have a blind spot in the eye, but we developed from one, a common line, yeah. which has resulted in our having a blind spot in yeah. the eye because the nerves are connected on the inside of the eye instead of the outside of the eye. Yeah. Um, it'd be perfectly easy to fix that so that... No human being has a blind spot. Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't we do it? And these are the questions... You yeah, it's funny that you mention eyesight, because I think that's a good example of, of evolution actually taking place, or not being allowed to take place, because as a race, our eyesight is getting worse. Yes. Because short-sighted people, they get a pair of glasses and contact lenses, exactly. and they have short-sighted children and so yeah. forth. Like, you know... Back in the day, you wouldn't last too long, generally, if you had bad eyesight. That's good. So you could argue... So evolution hasn't stopped. I mean, evolution is... Natural evolution, I mean, yeah. is such a slow process that it always seems like it's just yes. stopped. Yes, But it's still going. Uh, it, um, but yeah. not, not... I mean, you know, if, if it's going to be 200,000 years for a, for a minor change, I mean, we're not going to wait that long. You know, no. there's going to be a lot of things happen before then. But the other thing is we now so much control the environment yeah. that what... 
evolution in human beings is responding to is yeah. the environment human beings live in, which is now no longer a natural environment. No longer, but we don't know if that's going to be permanent either. So we're in that situation now. I wouldn't go as far as saying evolution stopped. Evolution is an immutable law of biology that's always going to be around. Now, you can deal with the effects of it. It's a bit like if we discover time travel. You, can, no. you don't say, well, time is no longer a thing. It just means that we've mastered I, it. I haven't suggested... No, no, I'm not, I'm not no, saying so you are. I haven't suggested that evolution has stopped. Yeah. What I said was it's no longer natural evolution for human beings because we no longer live in a natural world. I still think that... Yeah, okay, <laughs> we're going to argue about this. I think natural evolution is still happening, always going to happen, but it's incredibly, incredibly slow. And you're right, it still has less of an effect. But I've just given the example of the eyesight. That, if our eyesight is getting worse, that's, in a sense, natural evolution taking place because people with poor eyesight are breeding. Correct. But why are they breeding? Because, because is, of controlled the environment. Unnatural 100% world. agree with that. Yeah. I, you know, we, you know, we're, we're talking semantics a bit here. We are, natural yeah. evolution is still taking place, but you're right. It's, it's, not, it's not as important in our current time, in our current state, as what artificial evolution well, may uh, or may not be. All right. If you want to argue, for example, that immunity to COVID, natural immunity to COVID-19, yeah. uh, yes, you're correct. Yeah. We didn't create COVID-19. We are... Now, what we're trying to do, of course, is come up with vaccines and stuff like that so that if your immune system can't cope with COVID-19, it's still not going to kill you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a, mix, there's a mix of play yeah, going on. Yeah, yeah, But it's so heavily now yes. dominated by the... That, and that's unarguable. I'm not yes. trying to argue that. I'm just, yeah, I was just saying that it hasn't stopped completely, that's all, but... It's stopped enough that we don't have to notice it anymore. Indeed. <laughs> and, and now the listeners get to know what goes on between the flip and the flop. We, so, sorry. we have random and irrelevant conversations. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we, we digressed a little bit there. Um, that actually gets us the end of the chapter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call a wrap on this podcast and I'm actually going to make another podcast where we talk about our, our unanswerable questions because yes. I've got 20 of them um, and I think it's going to take us a while to get through them. I think it is. It's... Starting to look like a book in itself. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we'll call it a day for the day. Thank you for your time, sir. And uh, where are you going to see me? On the flop. <laughs> no. No, the flipping <laughs> flop. Uh, something yeah, like something that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs>